Good morning. I'm Eric Anderson, in for Debbie Cruz. It's Monday, April 3rd. A friendship forged through tragedy. More on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors will decide on May 2nd how to fill the vacancy created by Nathan Fletcher's resignation. Fletcher announced his resignation after being accused of sexual assault and harassment in a lawsuit filed last week. His resignation is effective May 15th. Board Chair Nora Vargas said in a statement that the process and timeline of how to fill the seat will be determined at the May meeting. The board can appoint a replacement or call for a special election. The San Diego Workforce Partnership has fired its longtime CEO. The nonprofit receives millions in taxpayer dollars to run job training and placement programs. The organization's policy board decided last week not to renew the contract of CEO Peter Kalstrom after it expires on June 30th. Kalstrom has been on a leave of absence since November when a group of employees sent an anonymous letter to board members accusing Kalstrom of racist and sexist employment practices. In December, a former worker sued both Kalstrom and the Workforce Partnership over similar claims of harassment, discrimination, and wrongful termination. Kalstrom denies the allegations and said through an attorney that he has dedicated his career to combating racism and gender inequity. Businesses in the city of San Diego are no longer allowed to use styrofoam containers. The ban went into effect on Saturday. Businesses are also not allowed to give customers plastic straws or utensils unless they ask for them. Businesses with less than half a million dollars in gross income have an extra year to comply. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. The mother of a woman who died in a San Diego County jail rallied for justice for her daughter last week. A local advocate helped out. Reporter Kitty Alvarado talked with them about their unexpected friendship and the change one jail death created. We love him. I mean, he means so much to us. Yusuf Miller and Paloma Serna have a friendship that was founded in tragedy and loss. The death of Paloma's 24-year-old daughter, Elisa, inside a San Diego County jail in 2019. If it wasn't for you, Yusuf, I mean, we would just be sitting at home because I would have just took the deputy's um, word that, oh, she died of an overdose, you know, which I always dreaded. Paloma says she watched her daughter die on video recorded inside the jail. What really haunted me is that she was pregnant. That really haunted me. She was pregnant. She wasn't, uh, there's no record of her eating. She was asking for help, begging for help. Every time she had a seizure, they never went in there to check on her. They just left her there. Investigations into her death state Elisa was having drug withdrawals, and during one of those seizures, she hit her head and collapsed on the concrete floor. Miller says it gets worse. She was neglected further so long that she had rigor mortis when they came in. She was neglected to death. He said the San Diego County Sheriff's Department handed their file to the Citizens Law Enforcement Review Board. The board issued their own initial recommendation about the deputy. We didn't think there was a policy that applied. We believed that they basically referred to and deferred to medical personnel. That's Paul Parker, the executive officer of CLRB. 
He says their hands were tied when it came to Dr. Frederick von Lintig and nurse Danali Pasqua, who were supposed to be caring for Elisa in the jail. And unfortunately, CLRP has no jurisdiction over medical personnel. We mobilize the community to show up to the CLRP to express our disappointment that no one is being held accountable. He kept on, Yusuf kept on pushing the CLRP to look at the case again. And they did. And they found a procedural misconduct and that the deputy had an obligation to do something. The district attorney did charge Van Lintig and Pasqua with involuntary manslaughter after that recommendation. Miller says Elisa Serna may have died before giving birth to her second child, but she did give life to a movement, the Saving Lives in Custody campaign. And through that, they have effected change. A state audit was launched after her death that showed the county's jail deaths have been the highest in the state for nearly two decades. And the community was exposed to the system which took the life of Elisa Serna and Gilbert Gill and Omar Arroyo and Saxon Rodriguez. And people were saying, maybe my loved one. And Sheriff Kelly Martinez is now putting in place many of the recommendations that came from it. Parker says her death also had an impact on their organization. Her death opened my eyes. Her death strengthened my resolve to attempt to obtain jurisdiction over medical service providers so that nothing similar happens in the future. And there's a state bill called the Saving Lives in Custody Act that also pushes for jail reform. Lisa Serna's case was so powerful that it went from grassroots all the way up to the state level, and we had no idea that it would go this far. We just put our heart and soul in it. Paloma says it was how two strangers with only seeking justice for a jail death in common struck a bond. He's family. He is family. Paloma says to many, her daughter was a throwaway whose life and death didn't matter. But thanks to Miller and those willing to listen, she didn't die in vain. You know, us parents, we have already their future planned out, you know. We always want them to do well in life. And it's a sad that in her death, Miller and Paloma are still fighting to get the deputy charged as well. And she believes real justice would mean the life of her unborn grandchild would matter too. They should be charged with uh, two deaths in this case. The San Diego County District Attorney's Office tells KPBS News they cannot comment on the case or if others will face charges. What do we want? Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. Chula Vista voters approved the Measure A sales tax in 2018, which funded the hiring of more than 100 public safety personnel. Now the city is using those tax revenues to buy more police cars and drones. Reporter Gustavo Solis has the story. Now that Chula Vista has hired dozens of police officers, the city is using Measure A tax revenues to buy more police vehicles and expand the police drone program. These expenses have widespread support from the city council. But not everyone in the community is happy with this public safety spending. Is what the city of Chula Vista doing with public safety sustainable and at what cost? That's Russ Hall. He led the opposition movement against Measure A. What are we giving up? Hall points out that roughly 75% of the city's general fund net costs are spent on the police and fire departments. He says that comes at the expense of other services, like keeping libraries open after 5 p.m. on the weekends. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. Coming up, we hear from the man behind a play at the Old Globe, who also happens to be directing Spider-Man. We'll have that story and more just after the break.
a San Diego nonprofit hopes to give away 2,000 prom dresses to teen girls who might not be able to buy one. Reporter Claire Strong has the story. It's extremely important to us that we celebrate all shapes and sizes for every single teen because everyone is beautiful inside and out, and we want them to know that. That's Princess Project President Karen Martin-Spellerberg, who, along with her team of volunteers, are real-life fairy godmothers. They're trying to ensure that every high school girl in San Diego gets to feel like a princess on their prom day, regardless of body shape or budget. All teens need to do to qualify is bring along their school ID. Martin Spellerberg says they're also encouraging girls to pay it forward. We're all about circular fashion and sustainability uh, because you're going to wear it once, enjoy that dress, feel beautiful and amazing in it. And if you'd like to donate it um, so that someone else could use it, we would absolutely love and appreciate that. Students can choose a free dress and accessories from the Princess Project store at Westfield Mission Valley Mall or at six pop-up shops located in local libraries. Proof that fairy tales can be real. Claire Strong, KPBS News. One big event currently running on stage in San Diego is the play The 19th. It's having its world premiere at the Old Globe and is about the iconic moment when two black American athletes raised their fists from the winner's podium at the 1968 Olympics. Kemp Powers is the play's author. He's also known in the entertainment industry for writing One Night in Miami, a story of a fictional meeting between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. He co-wrote and co-directed Pixar's Soul, and he was also brought on to direct Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, coming out this summer, and Beyond the Spider-Verse. Powers spoke with arts producer Julia Dixon Evans about the 19th, he started by talking about the inspiration for the play. The story of the 19th is, is really special to me because it's a history that I'm, I have to admit, I didn't know much about outside of that very iconic photo, um, the, that, that being the, uh, the Olympic protest in 1968 by Tommy Smith and John Carlos, and, and also actually Pete Norman, who supported them. And it's, it's something that's always kind of been a symbol of of black protest. When I started digging, being a former journalist, when I started digging and doing a little bit of research into what went on in the moments leading up to that, as well as what happened after that protest, uh, I guess it just got me thinking about what it means to to make a heroic gesture um, and what the cost can be, not just to the people who make that gesture, but to those who care about them, their families. Um, and their friends. And it, and it spoke to me about things like allyship and, and what it takes to, to really be brave. So these two men that you told us about, um, this was the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, uh, the two black sprinters who raised their fists in protest, it was on the medal podium. What was it that they were calling attention to with their protests? Well, leading up to the Olympics, there was a lot of talk. Um, the Olympic Project for Human Rights was basically considering boycotting the Olympics um, if they did not expel um, Rhodesia, which is today Zimbabwe, and South Africa um, from the Olympic Games because of their apartheid policies. Um, those two countries did end up getting expelled from the 68 Olympics, but a lot of athletes basically thought that it was still important to make a gesture because there were lots of 
there were lots of demands that the group had made, everything from the hiring of more Black coaches to the reinstatement of Muhammad Ali's um, boxing title. So there was a lot of rumbling about athletes making some kinds of gestures. Um, and of course, the, the biggest gesture we remember was that um, the raised fist of John, um, John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith. And I think the idea, at least as I explored in the play, was the idea that, you know, they do it and everyone else follows suit. But in reality, what happened is both Tommy and John Carlos were expelled from the Olympic Village within a couple of days. And most other athletes pretty much fell in line. And there was hardly any other protest. There was like one or two much smaller gestures at those Olympics. But but that was pretty much the end of it. And for athletes, you know, it's so complicated to speak out. How do you think this impacted John Carlos and Tommy Smith on on a human level? And I guess also, how did you find hope telling their story? Well, I mean, both of them have spoken at length publicly about their lives after it. Both of them have actually written their own autobiographies, but they had to suffer in their personal lives, professional lives, and in their mental, their mental health suffered um, pretty, pretty dramatically um, because of that. And, and I think when that example is made of people who speak up, it's very effective at making a lot of other people um, afraid to speak up in, in the same way. And what is inspiring to me is that, you know, people still do speak up and, and stand up, despite the, the pretty much the, the, the acceptance that doing so is going to put them in the crosshairs of of very, very many people. I mean, they did this back in a time before social media. It also gives me inspiration because both men spoke so lovingly throughout their lives of Pete Norman, the Australian runner who, who supported them by wearing a button. And I think another big element of this story um, is what it means to be an ally. Um, well, it, what it means to really be an ally, because in many ways, Pete Norman suffered almost as much as them without even having raised a fist just speaking in support of them and wearing a button, he was um, not invited back to the Australian Olympic team and was pretty much ostracized almost equally. So, I mean, and, but, but again, it's something that until the later years of his life when he passed away, he always spoke up with pride and with no regret whatsoever. So those are things that really, you know, inspire me about what happened. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening and have a great day.